Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, a whole lot of Apple talk. This week was Apple's developer conference, WWDC, where every year the company gathers thousands of fans and employees and developers and spends a week showing them new stuff. We're going to go through some of the best and worst stuff Apple showed off and some of the stuff it didn't talk about, but you should know anyway. We're also going to talk about Apple's stance on privacy, which was a big topic at WWDC and a thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Really, is Apple the company that's going to save us all from the internet? Later on, we'll switch gears a bit and chat with Atari CEO Fred Chenet about the state of the gaming universe and whether the OG gaming brand still has a place in it. Anyway, let's get to it all. Here with me as always, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Hey guys. Hello. Yo. It's like we know how to podcast again. We are podcasting. It's great. So, okay, before it all falls apart, let's just dive in here. Um, so, okay, so here's how I want to do this segment. We each picked a thing we thought at WWDC was big and important. We each picked a thing that they announced that we absolutely just could not care any less about. And we picked a dumb, tiny, small, ultimately unimportant thing that we care about maybe more than we reasonably should. There was too much at WWDC to cover it all. We did a lot of coverage on the journal's website and in the paper. You can go see it all there. Uh, but we're just going to talk about some basic stuff here. So we're each going to get like one minute for each of these things, and we're just going to roll through them all. Does that sound good to you guys? You ready? Ready. Okay, so... Uh, let's let's start with big things we thought were super exciting and important. And Joanna, you go first. What was your one big thing? Okay, so you told me I couldn't pick a big thing that's has to re- that's related to privacy. So, but right. my biggest thing is related to privacy. So I'm going to say it, and then I'll move on to my other big thing. So Apple sign in is Apple sign in is definitely the biggest thing that was announced. I can't talk about it right now because we're going to talk about it later. But yep. My backup for this is the death of iTunes. R.I.P. Well, the kind of death of iTunes. The kind of death of iTunes. Describe the extent to which iTunes is actually dead. Um, iTunes is dead if you are going to upgrade to Mac Catalina, which is the next version of 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 Mac OS. David, do you want to do your Catalina joke here or no? No, I, I can't. I can't swear, and if I don't swear, the joke isn't funny. Just go watch Step Brothers. That's all I'm gonna tell everybody to do. So if you have upgrade to Mac Catalina, you will no longer have iTunes. You will not have that little beloved icon anymore though it's kind of still goes to the music app so itunes is being replaced with three apps tv podcasts and music and you'll get everything that once itunes had in one of those apps if though you are still a windows user or not still most of the world is a a win are windows users you still get itunes and if you're an iphone user you still get the itunes store in ios so itunes isn't really that dead but i wrote an obit and you should read it anyway but it's not a thing you have to spend a lot of time opening anymore, which is extremely exciting. Like, you don't really have to ever use iTunes again on a Mac if you don't want to. Which I mean, I used iTunes on my Mac this morning, and I, and I, and I fell asleep in the, point, in the time that it was opening. So, no, I will no <laughs> yeah, I mean, longer it, have that nap time. And Apple literally spent time at the show making fun of itself for how bad iTunes has become. Yes. Which was Let's listen remarkable. to that. Okay. Customers love iTunes and everything it can do. But if there's one thing we hear over and over, it's, can iTunes do even more? I think it can. Like, how about calendar in iTunes? I mean, you could have all of your appointments and your best tracks right in one app. Could we take it further? I think so. How about mail in iTunes? And maybe... 
Safari in iTunes. And how are you gonna switch between these apps? Well, of course you'll add a dock. I think we've nailed it. Truth be told, our team had a better idea. The future of Apple Music, our iTunes is not one app, but three. Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, and Apple TV. So, okay, so iTunes is dead. This is good. Uh, and now it's, it's music, podcasts, and TV. Three things that Apple has made very clear that it cares a lot about going forward. Let's move on. Let's keep rolling here. Mims, what, what, is, your, what is your biggest thing from WWDC? iPad OS. I feel like I've been predicting this for years. I went and looked at my archive. 2015, tablets are the future of computing. Who could forget Apple should kill off the Mac? But in spirit, they are. Because guess what? Now we have a full real computer OS. No need to run through all the new features that they added. But I mean, most saliently, you have a file system now. This is a quote unquote accessibility feature wink nudge which is that you can now use a mouse with an ipad hello it just reminded me of that moment that steve jobs was talking about touch-based devices in the early days and he's like if you see a stylus they blew it and then you know of course now we have the apple pencil same thing here man joanna i think you asked about this right you you brought up the mouse and we're like can you tell us like why this exists even and why it's buried in the accessibility settings and the guy looked us dead in the face and goes we're really focused on the touch experience for typing as if that was like if he was like if you bring this up again i will murder you in this room it was really kind of incredible i've never quite had an experience wow. like that before it's it's just like a religious thing with them i mean look it is a beautiful touch-based interface that is a supremely intuitive way to uh draw and to edit videos but like if you don't respect the fact that like mice have stuck around for a reason and then even graphic designers like using them when they're dealing with the fiddly bits of their jobs then you're just not respecting the user so the fact that they finally did this it's just like yes thank you you know tim cook's got his ipad pro on a swing arm and is using that mouse functionality every dang day he's got a thousand dollar swing arm we're coming back to that that's desperately don't, what don't i want spoil okay, joanna I'm just stop spoil spoiling the rest of the podcast all right just stop it. How uh, else okay, are we going to get people to listen? My big thing, because we're going to talk about dark mode, because everybody loves dark mode, which is the biggest thing that Apple announced. If you're listening, you should fast forward from this point that. of the podcast I, I didn't look up to what dark the mode stand. Is, so you could convince me. This is my 45-minute rant about dark mode, so you should really skip ahead no, if, if you don't want to hear so about excited. it. Uh, so iOS now has a system-wide dark mode, which means you can quickly toggle all the apps from being white backgrounds to black backgrounds. It works in photos and reminders. And even on the home screen, you can have a different wallpaper for dark mode. You can set it to come on at night. Uh, it's just wonderful. And dark mode, it's good for your battery because on an OLED screen like the iPhone has, it can, only, it can actually light up each pixel individually. So when a part is black, it doesn't have to light that pixel, which is good for your battery. It's also good for your eyes to not be getting these glaring white and blue lights all the time. Uh, it's good for the longevity of your device because the screen doesn't have to light up so long. It's just cooler looking. One of the things Apple told us is that one of the reasons people like dark mode is just because it looks awesome. And that's why people have been requesting it. Uh, it's also great for things like content creation. Like there's a reason Photoshop has been dark as an app forever because you just want to look at the thing you're doing and not all the menus and borders around it. Uh, basically dark mode is just awesome and everyone should use it all the time and this is the only correct way to live your life. It's dark mode. By the way, you said OLED. There's no iPad with OLED in it, right? It's just rumored that that's coming. Yes, that is correct. I'm, I'm so dark mode iPad OS is the ultimate computing environment. Oh my God. With the, the mouse. <laughs> the dark yes. mode okay, so mouse. We should be pretty clear that um, all of this comes out, well, iOS 13, which is what we just talked about with dark mode, that comes out in uh, in the fall same thing with um, 
what did we talk about before that? iTunes, Mac, Mac, Mac Catalina. Catalina. That's also coming out in the fall. Everything is coming yeah, out in the fall. They always say fall, but it tends to be like, September. If, if history serves, they announce yeah. these things in September with new devices and then they'll release them then. Yes. So, okay, so let's move on to, uh, and, and we, we got to go quicker here, friends. So, things that Apple announced that you um, literally just absolutely could not care any less about. Joanna, you go first. That I don't care about? Yeah, you just don't care. Okay. Not important. Dark mode. Damn it. <laughs> uh, all right fair enough mims what do you not care about that stupid thousand dollar stand nothing else needs to be said <laughs> clearly anyway. you did not listen to the presentation mims can yeah, we roll wait, can okay, we roll so the clip what here is, what of, does this stand for let's roll the clip here of of the description of this stand and why it's why why we should all pay a thousand dollars for a piece of metal okay first it has an amazing counterbalancing arm that makes the display feel virtually weightless it provides tilt and height adjustment, and it maintains the display's angle as it's raised or it's lowered. And it has rotation for portrait mode. Yeah. The Visa Mount Adapter will be $199, and the Pro Stand, $999. And like the Mac Pro, they'll all be available in the, in the fall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing that uh, I could not care any less about is uh apple maps that apple spent a bunch of time on stage talking about how apple maps has street view and it has all kinds of new features and transit and i just don't care because i use google maps along with everyone else who cares why would anyone use I, the people who use apple maps are the people who don't care and just use the thing that's there and they don't care about these new features i'm totally with you and i think all of those features announced are complete catch-up obviously street view and transit the big thing with the transit set it's like like up to the second right yeah um, they get real-time info but i think it's good I, I i kind of agree with you as this as a good pick but um i think it is good for the people that use this and most of the people that do use Apple Maps are just the people that use the default stuff on the iPhone. So that's a setting. Um, okay, so category number three, small things that either did or didn't get mentioned, but certainly are not like big, huge deals, but that you care about probably more than you should. Joanna, what's yours? Okay, I tweeted about this and my went pretty big. The Wi-Fi button in Control Center now lets you con- go, you can click hard or press hard on, well, I guess it's 3D touch or whatever they call it, but I don't have 3D touch on my t- 10R. You can click in and you can switch your Wi-Fi network from there. You don't need to go all the way back into settings to do that. You can also do that for Bluetooth. So you don't that have to go big. to settings and for any Wi-Fi network. Because if you have to switch your Wi-Fi network, you always have to go in there. And now instead of having to like hit the thing, go to settings and then scroll down, you can just do it right there in the control center. Yes, yeah, so you do like the long press. It. It's definitely the, 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 the ultimate end of four billion years of evolution of life on Earth is this moment. I'm, yeah, that's good. I'm, they should beautiful. have spent a long time talking about this on stage. I'm crying. <laughs> tears running down my face. All right, Christopher, what's yours? Not in the main presentation. They announced some cool little updates to ARKit. They were called uh, body tracking and human occlusion. And basically what this means is if you're playing like Minecraft universe or whatever it's called, like real world Minecraft, um, people will show up the way they should. And we can turn the whole world into that movie, Roger Rabbit, who framed Roger Rabbit, once we get the Apple glasses. So just lay in some more track for our AR future. I think the maps yeah, is also the same thing. I think they're laying a lot of groundwork there for AR. Oh, for sure. All that Street View stuff, yeah. that's about navigating uh, by landmarks and stuff, which Google already right. does. So like when we put on our, a- our Apple AR glasses next year or three years from now, we'll see the churches or whatever. Well, you'll see, and also you, when you want those directions that are laid directly over what you're looking at, you, that you have to have the phone, the map has to have all that data in it already. So, yep, that's what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that 
all of this stuff. Like it, it led to the demo that I love that Apple does every year now, which is people walking around on stage staring at their phones uh, while nothing <laughs> happens in front of them. It's so good. I love it every single year. It's one of my favorite things. Um, okay, my my small but significant thing, they didn't even mention in the keynote at all, and it took me two conversations about Siri to learn that this was going on. But you can now use Siri uh, with iOS 13 to invoke or to play music with third-party apps like Spotify and Pandora and to use uh, navigation with Google Maps. So you can say, like, Siri, navigate home with Google Maps. You still can't change the default, wait, but you can at least direct to wait, other apps, what? which is huge. Yeah, they didn't mention this. It's wait, such a wait, big wait. deal. Wait, wait, Go back to the music. So I can so say... So you can now say, Siri, play Baby my Shark. weekly playlist on Spotify. No, I can say, hey, Siri, play Baby Shark on Spotify, and it That's will correct. play in my car. That's correct. I no longer need to subscribe to Apple Music. Wow. Right. Oh, this Siri. is the thing. Just, shh, shh. Yeah, sorry to everyone who's... Look. Oh, maybe it's already working. Oh, no, it just went to Apple Music. It went to Apple Music. It says, by, can, I can't play from Spotify, but here's Baby Shark by Ping Fong on Apple Music. So, so in iOS 13, it will be able to play from Spotify. That's giant news. Are you sure? I know. Yes, I'm sure. I asked three times. And Are I made you breaking it news me. on the podcast? Uh, possibly. Do we have a and breaking also, news sound effect? They also, <laughs> <laughs> And you can also do navigation with Google Maps and Waze. When everyone Which listens to this exciting. podcast, 48 hours from now, we've broken news today. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Privacy was, as we expected, a big theme of WWDC and a thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast. So there was actually a lot of sort of complicated stuff. Joanna, you and I went to a bunch of these meetings and there were a lot of different things going on. And I'm still trying to sort of piece together how Apple is treating privacy. But... First, let's talk about the, the story that you ran last week. So tell us about the tests you've been running on your iPhone. Yeah, so, well, it kind of started a couple a couple of months back. I believe we, we even had Sam Schechner on the podcast then to talk about the, the testing they did of a couple of apps in the App Store that they found were sending information to Facebook without any knowledge of the user. Um, and they were, most of the apps, that they those the ones that they tested were health apps, um, specifically period tracking apps or weight loss tracking apps. And they were sending info to Facebook in the background. They had, you know, with no, no knowledge to the user. And this gave me the idea around that time that we should look at some other apps in the App Store, um, specifically around iPhones, iPhones because I, I, Apple has been you know, the the... The champion of privacy. Plus, I think you know, the, the, the Apple sort of has a as a big app store presence and and promotes a number of apps in the store. And it felt like, why don't we take a look at which which of these apps are actually doing a lot of this tracking in the background? Where is our info going to? So I teamed up here with um, someone in our R and D lab, which is. Uh, Basically, they, they deal, do a lot of data research in the newsroom. And I teamed up with uh, someone named Mark Cicada. And we looked at um, 80 apps in the App Store, which we, we really picked from Apple's Apps We Love list. And our biggest findings were that all of them but one, so 79 apps, were sending – had what we call trackers, or they have software running in the background where your data is being sent to third parties – and most of them are using Facebook uh, or Google uh, for various different reasons. But there are also lots of other companies that are involved in uh, advertising, helping for ad targeting. They send this data to help track if you've downloaded an app, et cetera. Um, and a lot of them weren't, you know, we don't know if they're doing anything bad with this data, but some of them were doing things that really felt shady. And so this piece really looked at the fact that our sense of privacy on the iPhone may be a little bit uh, exaggerated. 
So, and, and just to be clear, 79 apps are sending, are, are sending data somewhere. That's not all nefarious, right? Like, there are, are there good reasons for an app to be sending data somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. So, like, like I said, some of them, there are some shady things going on. And I can talk about one or two of those in, in particular. But a lot of them are sending info to third parties to track how you might have gotten to that app, right? A company wants to figure out, okay, you saw an ad for this, and then you decided to download the app, or you saw a friend had this or mentioned it on Facebook, and they wanted to figure out how they got back to the app. So a lot of this is called attribution. A lot of it's also analytics. So where you're tapping in the app, do what are the things that are most popular? We do that on the Wall Street Journal app, right? We To, to figure out which stories are the most popular. Um, some of it has to do with actual just figuring out what you are doing in the app so they can make the product better. Um, other times they're sending this info to Facebook so they can target ads to you on Facebook. This is a good segue into the the sign in with Apple stuff because going into WWDC, Apple has spent all this time positioning itself as the great protector of your privacy. And uh, the question that I feel like you raised in, in the piece that you wrote was like, okay, Apple can do all this stuff that it wants and say all these things, but if it's not policing the apps and the app store and all of the stuff that's going on in the actual things that people are doing on their iPhones, then what is Apple really bringing us, right? And, and I feel like sign in yeah. with Apple was kind of a, a large step in, in an attempt to answer that question, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a giant, yeah, it's a giant step in that direction. So two things are going on with sign in with Apple. Um, one is, I mean, I think we should just explain what it, it is on the base level. Um, it, yeah. it is a way for you to sign into your apps instead of, for those that, let me back up here for a second. It is a way to sign into your apps using Apple instead of Google or Facebook. Typically, apps give you an Apple or Facebook login option, or they give you their own, so you can create an account with the app themselves. Apple is now providing their way of logging into an app, but will but is promising along the way to not collect a lot of data about you. It's mandatory if you are a developer who uses the Facebook or Google sign-in. So if you provide to your user a Facebook or Google sign-in, you have to now provide an Apple sign-in. Wow. Talk about market power. Yeah. And and Apple did not like when we asked if that was a dictatorial move. That didn't go over super well. But I, the the thesis there, right, is is basically so if you sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook, what you're doing is you're giving that app access to conceivably lots and lots of your Facebook data. They can ask for essentially whatever they want. And when you mm -hmm. click okay, you're you're maybe giving it access to contents of your email or your search history or whatever. Like a lot of them are, are not asking for all that stuff, but some of them do. And a lot of that data is being shared. So what Apple is saying is use this to sign in. We'll give you the same easy way of identifying yourself. No more usernames and passwords, but we will not share any of your data. Right. Right. And I think and that I think, seems like good news. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things was the, the email proxying, right, is the idea that even if you sign in with your Apple ID and you don't want the company to have your email, you they there'll be an option. I forget what the actual wording on the option is, but it's like, don't send my... I think it's hide my email. Yeah. And it will send a random string of email characters or in your email address to this company. So they won't actually be able to track your email or other things that your email may be associated with over time in their in their databases or servers. Joanna, you, you were asking Apple folks about guidelines that they have changed, right? Like there, there were, it seemed like there were a lot of little steps towards more privacy stuff this week. Yeah, absolutely. So in the piece that I reported last week, you asked it before if there was anything nefarious going on. 
a couple of the apps, we did find some nefarious things that were going on. The one I chose to focus on was one which was a kid's app. It was called Curious World, or it's called Curious World. And we saw in the logs when we were testing this, uh, the way we tested each of the apps is we would um, use this proxy tool where you connect the phone and your computer to a Wi-Fi tool, um, and you you get instant logs. I was getting instant logs sent to my uh, laptop of what was going on in the app. So all of the different third-party trackers would light up. I'd see a lot of it was encrypted, so I couldn't see where information was going. But this tool really gave me an idea of like how much every time you press something in an app, where that information's going to. It was really a, a cool way, or I had no idea I could actually see this info because it's all happening in the background. So when I was testing the kids app, one thing we noticed was that when I typed in, uh, it asked for my son's name and age. And I typed in my son's name and I typed in his age. And I immediately saw the Facebook tracker light up when we were testing this. And when I dug into the logs, it seemed that it was sending my son's name and age to Facebook and uh, information about the types of books I was well, my son wasn't really using it. I was. Uh, uh, the types of books or videos I was playing in the app, and that was all going somehow to Facebook. Uh, my reporting showed after speaking to Facebook, they said, we don't want this data. This is against our guidelines. Um, we don't actually do anything with this data. This is on the developer. The developer said this was a big mistake. He said it was a the, – the CEO of the company said this was rogue code in the app. Uh, and fast forward to this week, and this was part of my reporting that I showed last week, which is you know, a couple of days ahead of Apple's announcement, that Apple was going to not allow any third-party trackers to be present in kids' apps. And that was something they announced on Monday, not on stage, but in their developers' guidelines, that if you make a kids' app now, you cannot send any information to Facebook, Google, or any other third-party tracker. And that was that's really big news because, um, one, it's a first step for kids, but could Apple do this eventually for everybody, right? Wow. Yeah. And I think just one one thing to add, but and Christopher, yeah. maybe you know a little bit more about this, but I think this will have instant ramifications on the ad tech business. Um, certainly it will for the kids' apps. The kids' apps have to figure out ways now to uh, market their apps, to figure out how they got customers, figure out what types of things are happening in the app. They'll have to rely either on Apple's own tools or they'll have to rely on their own tools to do that. But all the companies that help do these things um, – it's they're they're going to have to find workarounds now, right? They won't just stop. Which was uh, the video I did with my piece last week was basically that pri it's privacy whack-a-mole. Like once there's one area where we can turn off a privacy control, they'll figure out another way to pop back up again and try to get our data. I mean, let's not forget that, for example, it is entirely possible to infer uh, user identity across devices, no matter how many blockers you have, because your device is always going to give up a minimum amount of data that makes it identifiable. And so if even if you're switching between devices, advertisers know who you are and can track you within a household by combining other sets of data, like location data. Right, which is another nefarious yeah. thing I found on a lot of my testing. It was really around IP address data and how how many times some of these apps were tapping the IP address. It's not just for location. That is how you do the the basically the device-based tracking, which can occur no matter what blockers you have turned on. Well, Christopher, they said they just wanted to make sure to keep me safe from hackers, is what the what? company said. Oh. Well, and Apple's also talking about And it was a meditation how... app. <laughs> so while you do nothing, God, they just you just sit there with your eyes closed while they steal your data. Basically. Correct. Correct. That's good. That, that's definitely going to help the next time I try to use a meditation app. Where it gets tricky, and this is sort of tangential to what we're talking about, but where it gets tricky is like Apple has a, an actual real incentive to kind of blow up the internet advertising model because that would hurt some of its biggest competitors. Uh, and turn things back towards what makes Apple a lot of money and rather than what makes, say, Google a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but it is true that the the privacy incentive is real for Apple. And like the sense I got in talking to Apple is that what Apple wants is for you to use its products for as many things as possible. And it understands that if you don't feel comfortable doing it, you won't do it. So for Apple to come out and say, hey, use this device for all these mission critical, like everyday life important things like cycle tracking or, you know, monitoring your health or e what is it? EKG on the, mm-hmm. on the Apple watch, like all these things for it to be able to say, use these things and you can trust that you can use them. is just going to worm Apple further into your life, which for sure is really good for Apple, but also good for you if, if they work in the way that they are supposed to. So like in that sense, it does seem like sort of a win-win. Here. And that's, and that's Google's argument as well. Like, don't forget that Sundar Pichai wrote this editorial two weeks ago before it was announced on stage at WWDC. So it's really kind of just like, the world against Facebook. Yes, but also Google is Google. is in a position of having backwards, like sort of mismatch incentives that way. Where Google, Google is saying, "Give us tons of data, and we promise we won't misuse it." Whereas Apple is saying, uh, "Don't give us any data." Google wants data about your purchase intent. Facebook wants data about your birthday, your mother's maiden name, your hometown, right. your sexual orientation. That those are different incentives. True, and but Google Apple, also wants to know everything you say in your home so that it can make Google Assistant better. Mm-hmm. And Apple, and Apple wants data to make its products better, the hardware and the services better. For what? Or you want. Apple says we don't want your data, and then Siri just continues to suck forever. Coming up in just a second is my interview with Atari CEO Fred Chenet on the past and present and future of gaming. But first. Our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings some strange or weird or wonderful thing we discovered this week. Uh, Mims, I think it's your turn this week, right? Yeah. Um, what do you got? I wrote a piece about um, how quantum computers are going to break current encryption, and you should read it because all of the data that's been hoovered up by foreign governments on all of us through various hacks, like the OPM hack, uh, is going to become decryptable in 10 years, according to engineers at IBM. Um, in the meantime, uh, in China... There is an 830-hectare facility being built, and it looks like sort of the Manhattan Project of quantum technologies. And one of them, which is uh, pretty much totally unrelated to quantum computing, except that it has quantum in the name, is called quantum communication. And that's when you you, you can engage in instantaneous communication, which is unhackable, uh, between any two points on Earth. It's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Right now, um, it requires like a satellite or an ultra-cold laboratory because you have to have these entangled particles that are then, I don't even know how they're entangled. I don't know if they have to get entangled and then moved apart or what, but China is working on a little box that you can carry into the field. So let's say you're having like World War III or whatever, and you want to communicate with your commanders uh, in an uncrackable way, you just use this little box. Quantum communication on the go. What what did you say it was called? Spooky action? Spooky. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. So when two particles are entangled, you do one thing to the state of one particle, and it instantly changes the state of the entangled particle, no matter how far away it is. And so you can use it for instantaneous uh, communication that can't be eavesdropped on, because you're not sending electromagnetic waves, which is how normal communication happens. You're changing the quantum state of a particle, which changes instantaneously the state of an entangled particle somewhere else, because physics. Okay, so I I just... Uh, I understood almost none of the words you just said, which made I me realize don't. that at some point in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to do a segment where you just explain quantum computing to Joanna and me. So start preparing for that now. Uh, David, thank you for saying that because I just thought I was dumb. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Mim, start preparing your explainer right now, please. And, and we're going to come back to this in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Let's do it. Next up, my interview with Atari CEO Fred Cheney. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. If you're a gamer of a certain age, there's a good chance the name Atari gives you warm, fuzzy feelings of nostalgia. There's also a really good chance you haven't thought about that name Atari in decades. The company that once created Pong has been through a lot of name changes and mergers and corporate strangeness over the decades, but it never actually went all the way away. And now Atari is trying to make a comeback for real, starting with a new console called the Atari VCS. It's a weird thing, this console. It has a mix of this old wood paneling and joysticks, but new controllers and games and ideas about how gaming is supposed to work. Uh, the console raised more than $3 million on Indiegogo in 2018, and the company says it's actually coming to market pretty soon. Uh, first, it'll be showing it off at the E3 Gaming Expo in LA. So ahead of E3, I called Fred Cheney, the CEO of Atari, to get his take on the state of gaming and to see what if anything, a legendary gaming brand from the 70s still has to offer in 2019. Is it going to be just like really high-res Pong? I'm not sure that people would pay to play Pong today. And I'm not sure that you 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 can have a, a sustainable business just selling these games, right? Uh, you need to do more. Um, because wh why is there... Uh, you know, such a, a new fashion of, you know, with these new games. It's very simple because we are very used to the, the new forms of playing, right? Today, you want to have an experience which is uh, entertaining, enjoyable in uh, two, three minutes. And these, these Atari games are perfect for that, right? People are multitasking today. Uh, you play a video game while at the same time you're checking on uh, WhatsApp or you're checking on Instagram what's going on and you're talking to somebody else. Uh, so these games for that are pretty, pretty uh, perfect. And um, this is why, you know, there's been such a success. But I think it's not enough if you want just to uh, to keep playing this game. Frankly, you don't need me. You don't need Fred. <laughs> That's fair. So and then what, what made you think about hardware? I think we, we've been in this phase for the last few years where, you know, mobile gaming is becoming so big and there are so many screens and so many devices and you see even now with things like Google Stadia which is being talked about this week also what what made you think that hardware is the route forward instead of making games or doing streaming or something like that why why build a console you know first and foremost Atari means software but Atari also means hardware you have the Atari 2600 you have the Atari 5200 you have the Lynx you have the Jaguar you, you even add a, um, a computer back in the day, right? So for us, it's also part of the DNA. That's the first uh, element that people have to take into account. The second element, and everyone remembers the wooden design of the, the initial Atari 2600. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when we look, we look at the hardware and we thought that there was nothing in the living room except for a computer, but there was nothing in the living room that people would be proud to show and that we have some use in the living room. So we've decided for people to be proud to show it, we've decided to create a very nice looking system. We thought that 
with the with the phone you have two guys Apple and Google they found a they found a place where you can have a lot of apps that you can use on your phone for uh, basically anything you want to do the phone has some limitations so you have applications that you can find on the phone that have a certain use but we know what the limits are uh, it's the limit of the, the phone itself the limit of the screens so the size of the screens so what we've done is in the opportunity we've seen was that for the living room, there was no one who had created just like the same combination, the same combo of hardware and software and created a hub for um, any user to have an entertaining or useful experience in their living room. If you have an Apple set-top box and if you're trying to go on Netflix or uh, Amazon, in, I mean, uh, Amazon Prime, it's incredibly clunky. Yeah, you don't have a keyboard or you don't have a joystick. You're, you're, you're with your iPad and you're trying just to, to go from left, left, right, right. For me, it's just like, it's not a good experience. Having something that people would be happy to have in their living room, which is that intrusive, and then you take any keyboard, any joystick and controllers, and then on your TV, you can enjoy some apps and uh, that you can use in your living room. So, of course, there will be some games, but also some movies. I think people will come up with different apps that we don't even know that they exist today. So that's what we want to do. OK. And on top of it, because, you know, uh, you always want to give as much as uh, as broad an experience as possible. We've also added a what we call a sandbox mode. So you can download any operating system you want, as long as it's compatible with the memory requirement. Uh, you can download any operating system you want in the HRE sandbox mode. And then you want to download the Windows. If you have the right edge, you can do it. You want to download, uh, you want to download any other operating system, you are allowed to do it. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a lot of things to try and do in one device. So you're thinking game console that can play both old games and new games. Uh, you're thinking sort of a smart TV kind of thing with, with streaming apps and stuff like that. And you're thinking just let it be a, a full-fledged computer for anyone who wants to do the work to put it on there. So calling it a game console is almost not even correct. I feel like it, it that doesn't capture what you're doing here. No, no, we don't want to see why we've, we've tried to avoid the console name. Uh, people came to us and said, oh, it's a console. We were like, no, it's not a console, but... Again, until and unless you can explain, you've explained what it is. People don't really get it. It's diff, you know, they want a word, and you're like, no, it's a little bit more than one word. So this is why we called it the video computer system, which is, by the way, a reference to the um, very first name of the Atari 2600. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, okay, what do you make of the fact that uh, you know Microsoft uh, several years ago tried to do something similar with the the Xbox One to make it kind of the hub for all of your entertainment and that didn't really pan out and i feel like others have tried to combine kind of pc power with streaming easiness and connect a keyboard to your tv and like parts of this have been tried before and nothing really seems like it's worked what what do you what do you make of the fact that this has been tried and failed over and over well the way we're doing it uh first there's always a question of timing right um, so it's not because somebody has done something today that it's not going to work tomorrow. Uh, you've seen that many times, you know, if, if you take uh, any big video game like Fortnite, you know, the last man standing mode, something that in my games, when I was publishing, producing games on my own in, uh, in 20, 2010, 2011, 2012, 
We had the last man standing mode. It was not popular at the time. Why? Don't ask me why. <laughs> so I think for me, you look at the, the, the past. Okay, it gives you a sense of what people wanted to do, what people didn't want to have. Uh, so I think it's not, really a, it's not really a problem. What we're trying to do is more... What we're trying to do is really to, to offer the flexibility and the freedom, right, with the, the sandbox mode. So we are offering one experience, but at the same time, we're offering the flexibility of being able to do what you want uh, with the, the sandbox mode. So I think that combination of these two elements is interesting. Second, we are pricing the, the product at a much, much, much lower, lower price, right? And it's very open. You can go on the web. You can... Uh, you can stay in the Atari sandbox, in the Atari mode. You can go on the sandbox mode. You can go on the web. It's there's a lot of things that can be done. And still, the the with the console, the the, the Microsoft console. You know, I don't think I don't remember that there was a keyboard. If you don't have any keyboard, it's just so clunky. You're just like, let's forget about it, right? <laughs> True. I go on HBO, right? If I want to catch up and I want to watch an episode of you name any show, right? It's so clunky. As you go A, B, G, forget about it. Yeah, I, I agree. So back to gaming for a second, though. You, you mentioned Fortnite and the, the last man standing mode. I mean, obviously, it feels like even since you started this project, I think you, you announced the that you were working on hardware in 2017, right? Even since then, it seems like the way gaming works has changed about a dozen times. I mean, Twitch has become an important part of gaming, and... Fortnite has obviously changed everything, and now we have game streaming and all different... It just feels like what people want from games and how they play and what they do when they play is is changing over and over. Like, Do, do you have a sense of kind of what what you need to do to fit into the, the current gaming landscape? Yeah, I think uh, to your point, it has changed, and I think what people want or bet is that for 249 they will want to buy a machine that basically let them enjoy that gaming experience in their living room. Because right now, if you play Minecraft, you want to play Minecraft with a friend on your TV in your living room, just forget about it. You want to play, um, if you want to play any uh, a game on your TV with friends in the living room, it's just impossible. If you want to have a hub where you have some games, some movies, if you want to switch from, again, in the living room, okay, let's go in the living let's go and watch uh, one guy playing Fortnite on Twitch. Fine. You can watch it behind the phone, behind your computer, or you can be in the, in your living room and enjoying that on your TV. That's I think we, again, this is what we're trying to achieve: bring the PC, the best of the PC experience, to the TV in a very simple way. And we think that in order to do that, you wanted to have a machine that you know your mom, if you're a kid, a teen, your mom or your uh, your dad would be just proud to show and have in the in the living room, that's it. But it's it's not we're not provide we're providing content. Uh, it's a hub for applications, right? In the Atari mode, and we hope that people will uh, and we're convinced that people will also uh, develop apps. That's one thing. But at the same time, we're also providing the sandbox mode, which is uh, like a PC um, for the living room. So that's the ambition. It's it's big, but at the same time, it is quite simple. Uh, just about the execution and making sure that we are a mass, mar- mass market brand, so we just want to be mass market. That's it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, it, does it feel like? I mean, as we talk, it, it almost seems like gaming is not necessarily the primary thing that you're thinking about. That it might not be the the number one use case here. Is that fair to say? 
No, 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 no. It's uh, first and foremost, it's gaming because it's Atari, right? So, no, no, first and foremost, it is gaming. Uh, but then, you know, just like to your point, gaming has changed. When you do a game, you want to do something different after that. It's multimedia. So it's uh, music, TV, uh, movies. It's everything that basically can come on a phone or on a TV. So here we are offering the interactive experience, the game one. But watching a movie, which is a passive experience, you can also enjoy it. So you have to have the whole range of multimedia. So it does seem like in an interesting way that TV has gone from being kind of the center of people's entertainment universe to still very important, but one of a number of things where people are, you know, watching movies on their phone now as much as they're watching on TV. And and even Atari has made mobile games and stuff like, do you think... Are we coming back to a world in which we want to do a lot of this kind of stuff on the biggest screen in our house? Or or is the multi-screen world kind of where we're going for gaming and everything else? The problem with the phone, it's a solo experience, right? So it's difficult to share a screen with a friend. People will still want to have that kind of shared experience on the big screen. Um, more and more, you see, they want to be... We want to share the screen and it's something which we believe has not disappeared. You may not think that this is something important or that this is something that people still want, but yeah, I think it's pretty, I think it's it's not gone, right? <laughs> I don't think we're in a world where people want to have a solo experience watching a, 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 a TV or a TV show on their phone. It's just a limit. For the record, really great high-res Pong is something I would be interested in. Anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks to Fred, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And most of all, thank you for listening. We have episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.